Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. Welcome to podcast number six in our series on the second half of world history. In podcast number five, we looked at the reasons specifically why the founding fathers back in the British North American colonies began to resist the what they claimed to be a repressive British government when it came to taxation without having any discussion, or as the phrase became known, taxation without representation. So we looked at that as well as the impact of the American experiment on government and how that would bleed through European society. I ended by discussing why it was so weird that as the founding fathers began to established themselves after their independence with the Treaty of Paris signed in September of 1783, how they eventually put together their Confederation government, which actually was done in 1781, but obviously how that flopped and they we worked on our, got to the point of the Constitutional Convention. And that once approved, where in the United States, parchment really is what's in charge, four pieces of parchment and the subsequent amendments. But I asked then, I, I, we ended that podcast by me asking, where were the founding fathers getting these ideas from? And I'm not taking anything away from them that, again, if you took a political science class in, uh, called comparative politics, you'd find a lot of new ideas generated by political revolutions throughout world history, yet nothing is generated by and large out of the American Revolution. Why? Because again, they weren't fighting for anything new as much as they were looking for the restoration of old freedoms. So again, we asked ourselves in this sixth podcast, where did these ideas come from that the founding fathers felt that they had the ability and the confidence to be able to plow through and forge literally not only an independent country from a former European countries' colonies, but also one based on a form of government never practiced for an entire nation. And that's the reason, if I could put it into one word, of what the Founding Fathers were impressed by, they were products of, anybody want to take a guess here? You over in the third row on the right? Yes, you got it. The Enlightenment. The influences of the Enlightenment that were running throughout Europe clearly were affecting our American counterparts as well. And in this podcast on world history, we're then going to discuss the Enlightenment or the Age of Enlightenment in terms of its influences and how society changed more or less or began to change as a result of Enlightenment thinking. So first off, let's unpack in terms of what do we mean by the Enlightenment? Well, it is what by and large, we have as a definition for enlightenment today, an individual who is considered enlightened might be one that we want to say is educated, perhaps well-rounded, worldly in their 
exposure, application, and ideas. But what the Enlightenment gave was a new way of thinking to pre-existing ideas. It is, and will always remain, the Enlightenment was the first influential movement in the print era. Not trying to say that there weren't influential moments before, movements, excuse me, before the Age of Enlightenment, but by and large, they were very conf uh, confined to a specific area and to the inhabitants of that area. And if the people in that area didn't have constant uh, human contact with another area, their ideas sometimes died with them then if there was no way to communicate that or expose other people to that. So within the Enlightenment as an age, it is our first one, again, in the print era. Prior movements, they had no choice but to spread via the oral tradition. Now the printed word would become the preferred method of communication. In other words, just taking somebody's word for it will no longer hold the same, shall we say, amount of water as it once did. Now we're looking for things to be put in writing and a signature by the one or more parties involved. Clearly, that not only has not gone away, if anything, it has just become more solidified in modern Western and in some cases, other societies. Case in point, try buying a, a piece of property. Try going through the process of purchasing or leasing a car, even if you're paying cash and trying to tell the representatives you're dealing with, yeah, you know what, we're just gonna do this all based on oral testimony, oral tradition. We're not gonna worry about signing any papers or anything. Yeah, good luck with that, right? So where did these, in this age of the Enlightenment era, where and how were these ideas written and communicated? Well, this is arguably also one of the first ages in world history where one could actually point to an area where the Enlightenment largely was embellished and was able to expand. And in that, that area, that not even so much as a geographical area, as a particular place would be the European coffee houses. The European coffee houses became the cultural centers to exchange ideas and engage in conversation. I ask you if you've never traveled to Europe before or to my European listeners, my gosh, the way you have a true icon in almost every corner of Eastern and Western Europe, you can find still to this day these truly essential coffee houses. And they're coffee houses like literally none other in the world. And again, I've traveled outside of Europe. I've also traveled to uh, Eastern and Southeastern Asia. I have traveled to the Middle East. I've been to North Africa, many places throughout the United States. The European coffee house is still a, a truly a legend to behold in the way that they're designed, built, and even the way that they carry out their business. I had one that stands out in particular to me is one that I would hope to be able to get my wife and kids to at some point when we eventually start engaging in international travel again, and that is the Cafe Central in downtown Vienna. That is a cafe that is beyond old in terms of uh, cafes within Europe are considered. And if you have the opportunity to go to this triangular shape or wedge-shaped coffee house, which is, of course, on the ground floor of a larger building, when one goes inside, it's breathtaking. 
not so much in what you hear, but rather than what you don't hear, coupled with what you see. Here in the United States, I'm not knocking our own, but we don't really have coffee houses by and large the way Europe does. In the United States, we are basically influenced by our major chains, our Starbucks, our Dunkin' Donuts, our Paneras, et cetera, which sell far more than just coffee. I remember myself going in numerous times to the Dunkin' Donuts on Jackson Boulevard in downtown Chicago when I was director of admissions at DePaul University. Crowded during the rush hour, of course, and the moment you walk in and you make eye contact with somebody behind the counter, it they immediately bark, your order please, what can I get you? I mean, it's all about speed. Get your product, give your money in and get the heck out of there. It's all about turning people over. The cafes, coffee houses in Europe, are the exact opposite. Not that you cannot be in a hurry, not that you cannot get things to go, but that is not the nature of these places. I had the opportunity to walk into the Cafe Central, and as I'm telling you about this now, I'm still getting chills to it because many, many coffee houses throughout Europe have such a rich and loaded history. In particular, this one in downtown Vienna, I am talking about the cafe where Vladimir Lenin and Leon Trotsky planned the eventual overthrow of the last Tsar of Russia. They outlined it. They discussed who would be their allies, who would be their enemies within the Russian borders, who would be their enemies outside of the Russian border, as well as international allies. Did those two gentlemen have any idea that the greatest enemy to their Soviet experiment was right outside the doors of that cafe, that they might have actually stepped over the legs of this young teenager who was painting postcards to try to get some money to get some food into his stomach. He was, by and large, homeless. I'm sure Lenin and Trotsky probably would not have given this young man a second thought. Why would they have? Why did anybody? But did they have any idea that that young man, now we know to be perfectly honest, we don't know, we have no record if Trotsky and Lenin ever were actually inside the cafe when this man was outside the cafe, this teenager, at the same time. But we do know that the time frames overlap. Did they have any idea that that teenager with the shiny black hair that was trying to paint these postcards for food and for money would turn out to be their greatest threat? Did they have any idea that that homeless kid would eventually command a nation and the world's largest and most powerful army that would bring the brink of their experiment right to the edge? Did they have any idea if they had only asked the name of that young man and he would have replied, my name is Adolf Hitler? More about that when we get into the 20th century, especially on Adolf Hitler's background. But this is just, as I say, when I walked into that cafe, to that coffee house, even before I walked in, I looked at the front door. Where did Hitler sit? Was he to the right of it, the left of it, both sides? And yes, I'll admit, my mind rolled on. What if, just, just what if a car had jumped a curb and injured him or killed him? how different history would have been. 
but it wasn't to be. It's not my place to try to correct that. It is what it is, sadly in this case, significantly sadly, devastatingly so. But this is what I'm talking about. As I said, I go into this coffee house and I see this in my mind that replaying what once took place just outside. And then you go inside the, ca the coffee house and you imagine where Lenin and Trotsky sat and how many other thinkers, Freud and Mozart and others that were known to traipse in and out of this coffee house at one time or another. And I haven't even sat down yet. <laughs> right. So but getting back to the coffee house in terms of its role in the Enlightenment era, these were the places that you went to and you were not expected to do place your order consume your product and quickly leave. It was anticipated that you would stay here for at least an hour, if not several hours. You would order your Turkish coffee, extremely strong coffee, or other types of coffee, decaf or otherwise. Everybody received, if you had cream and sugar, your own little sugar container, as well as your own dispenser of cream, and your tiny little glass of water just to cleanse the palate as you would be consuming your coffee and perhaps a light pastry, a Danish of some sort that you could order. Don't be surprised at how elegant these places look, where literally you, you feel as though that even with a pair of business pants, dress pants, and a sport coat, you might just be toeing the line of being considered underdressed when the female waitresses are dressed for the nines and the male, wait male waiters walking around in full tuxedo, true with the actual white towel over their arm. It is a place to behold. And as any of you, my, my listeners, if you ever have the opportunity to travel to Europe, oftentimes the major, major landmarks are where people will tell you to stop. But don't forget about these little side places. They hold so much history. If only the walls and the foundation could talk. One of the products to come out of the Enlightenment era, however, also was the what becomes known today as the encyclopedia. Just to unpack this in terms of what we mean by an encyclopedia, the first one to come out of Europe were published in 1772. Please remember why the encyclopedia clearly was a uh, source that any grammar school uh, child or student would consider the be-all and end-all of, of knowledge, that the book of knowledge, the several volumes of knowledge that one could obtain. And then you find out that by high school, your teachers are encouraging you to, let's just say, think outside of the box of just the traditional encyclopedia. And then we finally get to the college level and any decent academic college level paper is not going to quote from an encyclopedia. Well, what's going on then? Why this wide acceptance to being absolutely shunned in a matter of years that a student progresses through school? Because an encyclopedia by definition is an anthology. No one person has enough knowledge to write about every object, movement, person, etc., from A to Z in 26 or more volumes. So because of that, encyclopedias are managed by an editor who then seeks out experts in all varieties of fields in order to write small articles or short articles, perhaps with a picture when it was considered relevant, in order to be able to demonstrate what is being explained. Because of that, that's the beauty of it. You truly can get an exposure to such a wide variety of topics, people, events, places, etc. that are out there. However, therein also lies, lies its weakness. 
the encyclopedia has to go a thousand miles wide to use that as an analogy to try to cover all the topics but now to keep it manageable so that it's no more than 26 volumes in the days when they were truly published as book volumes you had to keep each article on the shorter side therefore it does go roughly 1000 miles wide but it doesn't allow you to go more than an inch or two deep again for the grammar school type book report project, et cetera, that's fine. That, that, that book works, that encyclopedia works. By the time we get to the college level, we need to be going significantly beyond that relatively shallow approach and look at the various topics that are discussed. Please know too, though, that the encyclopedia, like any other printed material, would however, have a bias intrinsically with it, either because of the author, him or herself, or because of the government in the country where the encyclopedia set was being published. The goal, yes, was truly to educate the masses, to allow an individual to be exposed to an event, a person, a place that they might not have had the opportunity prior. So that's what one of the products that comes out of the Enlightenment era is the encyclopedia. In terms of religion and the, the Enlightenment, of course, this would also be a source of clashing between Enlightenment thinkers and the religious scholars and leaders of the day. But please note that in terms of the Enlightenment, one of their tenets was simply put, and if I could put it into literally four words, a good life now. Oftentimes, our religious texts talk about postponing one's fortune, postponing what one might do for oneself and putting God and others first. Enlightenment thinkers aren't discrediting that or denying that, but enlightenment thinkers are definitely saying there's nothing wrong with having the good life now while we can enjoy it. Out of that enlightenment crossing with religion, we get the rise of deism, which is religion is stating more or less that the deists believe that while God does exist, he may not truly be present in every facet of our everyday life. This, however, where the issues come in, where the deists try to push the envelope, is that religion and reason can actually combine. And they, the deists, feel as though they truly are, along with the help of scientists, truly feel as though that they are helping religious clergy and religious higher-ups and establishing proof of some of the great biblical stories. In other words, the proof of God through nature was fact. The idea, for example, as we begin to start asking the questions, did Noah really have an ark? Did the world really flood? Who was on that ark? Did Moses really split the Red Sea? Did the great kings of the Orient really see a star at the time of the birth of Christ? They start exploring these biblical stories academically using the relatively new scientific method to be able to understand these stories of the Bible. Now, why then wouldn't these social thinkers therefore actually find themselves an ally, specifically with leaders of the Roman Catholic Church? Because according to the church, they didn't need to find any proof of the legitimacy 
or the facts of these biblical stories. That wasn't necessary. And that's where the rub came in. However, we have found that no, Moses might not have parted the Red Sea with two massive walls of water on either side, the way the Bible describes. But maybe what Moses had done is led his people through an area near the sea with low tide, that when the enemies came to pursue was high tide and couldn't get through the water. It doesn't take away from the biblical story, according to Enlightenment thinkers and the deists, but maybe it just wasn't that extreme case of 10 feet of water on both sides as Moses leads his people through. And again, that's where the conflict with the church came. The idea that there was a significantly bright star at the time of the birth of Christ well, astronomers and uh, has largely been able to prove of a significant bright body roughly 2,000 years ago in that area of the world. And Moses and the ark, well, did the world flood the way that biblical pictures and stories describe it, that truly nothing survived and it was not, had it not been for Noah and the ark, no life forms would have? Well, yes and no. Remember what the known world was to people in the ancient world in that area on planet Earth, that there could have been a devastating rain that washed out much of what they saw as the known world. But remember, they have no knowledge how far down the coast, this uh, continent of Africa goes at that point. They have no knowledge that there's a North and South American continent and a Central American massive strip of land that connects both of those continents. So world flooding, again, the DSA, it doesn't take away from the story of Moses or Noah, but in some cases could actually legitimize it. But again, the church doesn't see it that way. There would also, with the DS, be a profound push in the belief in an afterlife and the fact that within that afterlife, not everybody may be going to that ex uh, extreme, wonderful Garden of Eden type place that may be dependent upon the type of life we led. We might be going to a very bad place, generally considered down, fire and brimstone and darkness. In other words, hell. It is at this time that the deists begin to propagate the thought that maybe heaven and hell is exactly the same place. In other words, heaven and hell might be identical to one another. And if you're driving, I, I caution you, keep your eyes on the wheel. I promise you I'm not drinking yet. And I promise that I'm very clear with what I clarify what I'm saying here. But the thought was, if you imagine, and this is the analogy that is used, that heaven and hell, again, same place in the, in the, after we leave on this, after we leave this earth and go on to the afterlife, that we are brought in to this wonderful smell of some of the best food we could ever possibly smell and how good that we can only imagine that that food is going to taste. Well, the people going to hell are smelling the exact same food and they agree it smells wonderful. We get to our table to sit down. We see people that we cannot wait to talk with that we've missed for so long. People in hell see the same people, people they want to connect back up with. But after we're seated, we can't wait to start getting into this luscious food. And the people in heaven, oh, they start eating right away. 
They're enjoying the food. You can hear the way they moan at how good the food tastes. And they talk with one another and they ask questions of one another. While the people over at the table of hell, there is nothing as, uh, other than, as the Bible says, a wailing and a grinding of teeth because the food is right there and they can't eat it. The people that they want to talk to are going to have to wait because they want their food. And mind you, everything, ladies and gentlemen, is identical at both tables. Same silverware, same size plate of food, very real food. All they have to do is put their spoons and forks into that food and start eating. And the people that sit down at the table of heaven understood that right away, and they started eating right away. But the people at the table of hell can never figure it out. What's different is that the plates are normal size plates, but the silverware is roughly six to eight feet long. Handling the silverware by the end, no human arm is long enough to be able to put your own silverware into your own food and bring the food up to your own mouth. The people of heaven, that thought never occurred to them because they led a life of always thinking about others first. So they immediately understood that they picked up their fork and spoon, reached across the table to the other person's plate, and gave that person the food from their own plate while that person fed them. Throughout the table, you would see the crisscrossing of the silverware as everybody was feeding one another. To those people, there was simply no other way. While the paid table of hell, all these people are grinding their teeth and wailing and the gnashing and gnarling of their gums, they can never figure out how to get their own food into their own mouths, reflecting the life that they led. The point being that the difference between heaven and hell is our own mind, our own conscience, and how we lived a life with that when we were here on this earth. Deism, very, very deep thinking going on here is hopefully you guys so you're able to quickly ascertain and mind you i am only literally covering just the very tip of the iceberg as to what the deists largely discussed all right so where does roman catholicism or the roman catholic church stand with the other predominant uh, religion that is gripping the european continent and that is islam that they both are still rivals there was very little interest in either side of understanding one another Roman Catholicism prevailed primarily in the West and parts of Eastern Europe, while Islam and the Orthodox churches were prevailing far more in the East. All right, in terms of now, we talked about the Enlightenment in the sense of what it was, the impact of the coffee houses, the first product called the Encyclopedia coming out, the rise of religious thought through the deists in, in Enlightenment thinking. Now let's look than at society in the age of the Enlightenment. It is in the Enlightenment that the term social sciences debuts. So when one says, hey, I registered for my classes at the university or the college I'm attending. Oh, well, what classes are you taking? Technically, that student would be right if, if he or she said, oh, I'm taking all science classes. Every class is a science class. 
because it is an advance they're going, they're studying knowledge to know. So therefore, they begin to break off between the, what will eventually be called the hard sciences. And that will give us our sciences like the chemistries, uh, physiology, uh, psychology, psychology, excuse me, um, biology, chemistry, ge geology, etc. The hard sciences. The social sciences will be concerned with those aspects that might not be able to be physically touched as they can in the hard sciences. This will be the psychology, the history, religion, eventually law. The social sciences debut, however, with a goal in mind. While the physical sciences were trying to understand the physical world, might the social sciences be able to be studied to end human cruelty, to end all of the ills of society that we bring on ourselves. This is the goal of the debuting social scientists. One of the individuals that's going to make a breakthrough in his years during the Enlightenment of 1738 to 1794 is none other than Shazare Beccaria. His proposal, along with the physiocrats, is going to take our understanding of how we study ourselves and in the various social science fields and is truly going to turn it on its end. Because all of these discoveries and ideas that are going to be discussed will be ultimately brought back to how it affects the human being. And that's what we'll begin with our seventh podcast in our series on the second half of world history. Please go to my website, ceconsola.com. Email me with any questions or comments you might have. If you like what we discussed today as well, please leave me a review. Thanks again for listening. Have a great remainder of your day.